0: Friend, welcome to episode 45 of Sally's Performing Arts Lab podcast. Deborah J. Hunter, poet, spoken word artist, and actor, and past winner of the prestigious Jingle Feldman Artist Award, joins me on this episode of Sally Pal. Podcast host Sally Adams. I talk to people about creating original work for a live audience. Send an email anytime to sally at sallypal.com. Thanks to everyone who joined me at New York's Town Stages for my live feed last Wednesday, August 8th. My daughter, writer Emily Adams, joined me as well as several fellows from the Town Stages Sokoloff Fellowship Program in New York City. Nimrod, Curbside Review, This Land, and Another Sun in the UK have all published Deborah Hunter's essays and poems. Deborah has made a lasting impact on her community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, through her work as a certified behavioral health case manager and as an artist. Her impact is felt throughout the state. This year, Deborah was honored with a Woman of the Year Pinnacle Award for Women Creating Real, Sustainable Change in Oklahoma. Over the summer, Deborah worked with playwright Tara Brooke Watkins, developing ideas through something called story circles. Using the Mary E. Jones Parish collection of photographs, Tara created a new work about the 1921 Greenwood Massacre in the Tulsa Greenwood District. Tara asked my guest, Deborah Hunter, to build a poem around the phrase dig it, or so you want to dig, for the piece. Two poems by Deborah Hunter appear in the work Tulsa 21. Black Wall Street. Deborah also worked this summer with Portico Dance Theatre on their summer stage production simply titled, Whoa. Her poetry is very much in demand these days. As a performing poet, she brings her formidable energy to the stage, creating stories and characters of substance. Her grandmother was a survivor of the massacre on Greenwood and her adult daughter is mentally ill. When Deborah's daughter was diagnosed with schizophrenia, Debra began a long journey learning how to relate to people with mental health diagnoses. She's a mental health advocate, a voice for women of color, someone with a deep understanding of homelessness, and a soulful storyteller. During the interview, Deb and I covered a lot of ground in our shared hometown, including One Oak Ballpark, Guthrie Green, the Mental Health Association of Oklahoma, NAMI or the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and the Greenwood Cultural Center. We talked about Pablo Neruda, Henry Louis Gates, Hannibal Johnson, David Blakely, and his play about the Osage murders called Four Ways to Die. Blakely based his play on David Grand's book about the murders, Killers of the Flower Moon. I also mentioned a book about race relations I read as a teacher at Holland Hall Preparatory School titled Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum. I can recommend both books enthusiastically. There is so much depth to Deborah's way of looking at the world. She is strong and kind, formidable and nuanced, deep and funny. I know you'll enjoy hearing Deborah's point of view as both an activist and an artist. I've included links to all the things we mentioned during the interview in the blog and show notes. I know you'll enjoy episode 45 with Deborah Hunter. Be sure and listen until the end of the interview for. Concise advice from the interview and words of wisdom from George. Let's get started.
1: Deborah, thank you so much for being on Sally Pal. You're welcome. I am so excited to talk to you because you are constantly on the move and doing so many exciting, creative things. And I'm really interested on your latest project having to do with the Greenwood Massacre.
2: This project came about as a project of Tara Watkins, and she is originally from Tulsa and really, really wanted to do a theater piece about the 1921 Greenwood Massacre. So she held a series of story circles last summer, and I was a part of the story circles. During that time, I read my poem on the Greenwood Massacre called Doomed to Repeat, and she asked me if I would do that in the play that she was going to write. And so that poem is included, I'll be doing that poem, and then she asked me to write a second poem for the second act, which I did, and I'll be performing those two poems in her play.
1: What is your process? How does it evolve? Are you a real collaborator, or do you like to work independently when you
2: start? You know, I honestly have to say that I don't consider this a performance. <laughs> I had sent her the poems because she doesn't live for any longer. She's been coming just for this project. So, you know, I read the poem in the in one of the story circles, and I sent it to her and several other poems because she decided she wanted to use my work. And wow. she chose the one that I had already done and okay. then gave me a phrase and asked me if I could build a poem around that phrase for the second act. And so the phrase was, dig it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So you want to dig. That's the title. In the play, there were several times where people talk, when we talk about digging, you know, we talk about digging graves and talk about digging into the past, digging into history. And so, you know, that she was kind of pulling on that.
1: What is it that you are pulling from if you have only one phrase? Do you just freestyle trying to find where it lands?
2: I sometimes just start out by writing a list of words and see if it can give me an image because I write a lot from imagery and then that image is what I try to flow with so for me with the with the phrase so you want to dig all of those things came together with you know the digging up in the Brady it was the what was the Brady District and now the Tulsa Arts District you know they're digging up that ground for the ballpark and digging up the mm-hmm. ground for Guthrie Green and 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 all of those, and you know, and digging up other areas for gentrification.
1: Mm -hmm. And you're a native Tulsa, so a lot of this is already very familiar to you, but in addition to that, you've already done a lot of research on this subject. Yes, yes, I have. I started a while back. What is it about that subject? There are people who listen to the podcast who are not familiar with Tulsa. So what is it about that event in history that draws so many artists to this story?
2: I think it's because it's, it's a largely untold story. The fact that for some of us, like for Tara, for me, it's part of our history because she's originally from Tulsa. I was mm-hmm. born and raised in Tulsa. My grandparents are survivors mm-hmm. of the Greenwood Massacre, and I didn't learn about it until I was 20 years old, and no one wanted to talk about it.
1: we referred to it in schools and in literature as the Greenwood Race Riots, and it's only recently becoming clear that there was nothing riotous about it. It was a massacre. It was an attack on a community. That sort of untold story has an operatic quality, I think, that needs to be told. And I talk a lot about that, uh, how we build our culture based on our stories. And when we leave stories out, that information gets left out of the building of a culture.
2: Exactly. And I think that that wound still exists in Tulsa. And until this becomes an accepted part of the history, and believed part of the history, and some form of reconciliation happens, this wound will continue to fester.
1: But I would actually love to hear more about what you think the artistic community can do to forward that.
2: I think that the artistic community has, has started doing that well by, you know, we have artists who are doing, right now, have, have done a mural. There's been There have been plays done before locally. There are books being written, and we don't know why it hasn't been more nationally recognized artistically. I know that there's been a lot of media attention, probably a lot more media attention nationally than locally. But artistically, I mean, it would be wonderful to have something on the level of Hamilton. So get get cracking there, girl.
1: <laughs> Let's get started. I mean, seriously, Deb, I want to say something about your work specifically, because I've seen you perform many times, and you have such a strength in in the way you present. But it's not just that. The way you tell stories, and you've told stories lots of different ways. You've written uh, at least one novel that I know of. You're a poet extraordinaire, but you have a way of expressing stories that really draws people in, because I can watch an audience watching you, which is actually almost as much fun, and how they start to lean in and lean in and lean in. So say something about how you present
2: your work? That's really difficult to explain because it's one of those things that really comes naturally. I have to be very emotionally attached to the story that I'm telling. And the story isn't necessarily my story. You know, I do a lot of poems in first person that are not my personal story, but the audience doesn't necessarily know that. And so when I I write a poem from the perspective of the character that I've created, then I just have to be that character when I'm telling the story. Even if it is a poem, I, I am a character telling a story. If you're
1: telling the story, you are telling that truth. And it seems like you're really creating a relationship with the audience in that moment. And and you can't do that if you're not being honest. Exactly.
2: And I think I think that deep down, you know, for <laughs> me, it's a challenge. You know, I, <laughs> it's like when I'm in front of that audience, I'm like, I'm going to get you. I'm going to make you listen to me, I'm going to like make you believe this truth and I'm going to and you're going to make a change when you walk out of here. And so that's kind of where the the connection to the audience comes to comes from for me. What is
1: it that you can tell all of the rest of us, whether we're, I'm Caucasian, whether we're white or black or whatever, what do we need to know to make these steps forward? Because as artists, I think we have a responsibility to move us forward in the conversation.
2: You know, that was what the the poet Pablo Neruda said, that we are the legislators, that artists are the the legislators. So that's what, you know, that's why we're dangerous. (laughs) That's why um, when there are Unrest in a country, the first people they go after are the creative people, because we do tell the truth. We tell it in ways that people hear.
1: It wouldn't matter if we weren't exerting some form of power, but
2: stories are powerful. Exactly. But the fact that a story or a poem or a piece of music touches a different part of the brain than simply reporting. They're connecting to different parts of the brain, and there's, there's all of this um intercommunication in in parts of the brain that happen with art i grew up during during segregation but my mother always told me nobody is better than you are nobody i don't care if it's the queen of england or the president of the united states that's what she said to me But she said but you're not better than anyone else either just like a mother <laughs> yes my whole life has been people say how did you Learn to react and interact with white people when you grew up in segregation. And I learned to interact with them because they're just people. I don't treat anybody as if they're better than anybody else including me. To me, it feels like such common sense. But of course, that's not for everyone.
1: And we're seeing that now, unfortunately. But of course, the other side to that coin is we have to speak out. There comes a point where, you know, when it's so subtle, you're not quite sure. It's it's too insidious to respond almost. But when it becomes, you know, <laughs> so obvious, <yeah. laughs> then, then then you're obliged to speak out, I think. I
2: think that, that things are happening now that because it's so so blatant that more Mm -hmm. people are speaking out and but i think that part of the problem is that we don't always speak out against the subtleties how do you address that we have to do it individually because if we don't we have to do it individually first before people who are in positions of power and who are doing the systemic things that you know that perpetuate racism if we aren't addressing the, the subtleties then then it will never, ever have an effect on the bigger picture.
1: As soon as we start to see the subtleties clearly, they're not so
2: subtle anymore. Right. Exactly. Once you recognize it, like microaggression, once you recognize a microaggression, it will never, ever be invisible to you again. Yeah,
1: definitely. We we were uh, required to read when I was teaching. We had a book every year at Holland Hall, and one of the books we read was Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? I may be misnaming the book, but it was really an eye opener for me in so many ways. And I read that after I read Hannibal's first book on Greenwood. And so, so many things became more localized for me. And I started seeing my own behavior, you know, that sort of, oh, I don't really see that, or I'm not really racist, or all of those things that we say to make ourselves feel better. Mm.
2: The friends I have who are white, Are really good friends they they couldn't be my friends otherwise I mean if they weren't able to recognize within themselves their own prejudices but I also have to give them a level I have to create a comfort zone I have to be accessible and how do you do that for me it's uh, about not being angry all the time and giving a person a chance to show themselves to me because I'm not going to automatically assume that because you're white, you're out to get me. But that takes
1: something this day and age, I think.
2: Yes, but I also have the alarm button <laughs> if someone says to me the job that I do working with, in the library as, as a mental health and out, homeless outreach case manager. And so sometimes the library staff will have someone who needs some help with something. They'll say, we have a case manager, would you like me to get her? She can spend more time with you than we can. When I come out, (laughs) I walk up (laughs) to the person, and I say, Mm -hmm. hi, I'm Deborah." And they look at me and go, you're Deborah?" (laughs) And it will be a white person. And so, (laughs) and they assume it's not a black position. They have to readjust themselves. And you Mm -hmm. can see them readjust their reaction. And I see them. Yeah, And I smile, and my expression says, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I know for a fact that after my daughter's diagnosis of schizophrenia happened, and with all of the things that we went through, I went through some therapy myself, and I went through some training through NAMI to learn how to deal with her, because her delusion is that I'm not her mother, and that's never changed. And so... How do I communicate with this child that I love who doesn't even believe I'm related to her? Even though I knew it was something she couldn't manage and she couldn't control, I just couldn't deal with it until I had the training. And I went through some therapy and learned how to meditate and all of those things together. And so even doing all of that, my daughter still wound up seriously ill. She's still wound up homeless. She cannot live with me. And so all of these things, you know, trying to keep her on medication and keep her safe. But in spite of all of that, I'm always, always there for her. I've never changed my phone number so she can always get in touch with me. And she always remembers it. But it was understanding that after all of that and having me with her all, you know, to support her through everything, she still wound up with serious issues, she still wound up homeless, she still wound up in jail. What about all the people who have mental illnesses who have no one to support them, to advocate for them? That was what put me where I am now. I mean, you know, I did a lot of trainings through NAMI uh, and helping with Mental Health Association to train people you on mental health issues and I've been an advocate statewide uh, on mental health issues Mm -hmm. and It's all about education. And so is racism. It's about education as well. My whole thing is I'm going to educate you, (laughs) whether you (laughs) like it or not. But initially, if someone is asking me questions, I'm not going to get angry if they ask me questions because they aren't going to listen to my answers if I'm angry. Especially, you know, if I have somebody white who's asking me about my hair, you know, that's a touchy point. And and some people will get very upset about that and walk away. But if, some, if a white person asks me about my hair, then I will explain it to them. I
1: love that you are so patient and you couldn't be in that position without that. You have a heart for people struggling with these invisible disabilities. And as you know, I do, too, because I have a child who uh, struggles with bipolar disorder. So what is it about working through that that fuels your art, because I can't help but think that it does. It
2: really does depend on the person, how they approach me, what they say, and the mood I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay.
1: <laughs> I like that. I like that. Because <laughs> you're a human being, you know, behind all of it, just like all of, all of us are. You're a human uh-huh.
2: being. When I did my one-woman show about my experienced with my daughter with the schizophrenia you know the monologues. the first time i performed it and i did you know i was switching from one character to another and i would do the mother's monologue where i was crying and then i have to step into the daughter's monologue who was detached and in darkness and to shift from one to the other was difficult and so the first couple of times i did it it was very difficult and now i can do it more easily and still, it was hard to learn how to how to have that emotional attachment to each character as I played her, but still be able to switch from one to the other.
1: I think it comes out of you actually feeling the work as you're delivering it.
2: With my poetry, I feel it when I'm writing it, and, and then I feel it when I'm performing it.
1: That's what you want for all of your actors, but not all of them will be able to do that. You've got such a great mix of voices inside you, I think. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your Native American background. I
2: did a DNA test. And? And I am not Native American.
1: Oh, no! I know! Do you have ancestors that were adopted into the tribe? My grandfather's a Cherokee freedman,
2: and I think that... That was where the family story came from, that we were Cherokee. And I started having some doubt about whether we actually were when I got the census records on my great-grandmother. And she was listed as mulatto. Right. And my grandmother, who really looked Indian, she looked Native American. Henry Louis Gates uh, did an essay about, about African-Americans who believe that they're Native American. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that the African mixed with the Caucasian can look like very much Indian, so many African Americans were mixed with white as a result of, of slave rate yeah. that when they were uh, emancipated, they wanted to distance themselves from that. And so because of the the features, they were able to to claim to be Indian.
1: I've heard that there are a lot of people in, in Oklahoma like that. All of that is so fascinating now that we're having these conversations about race and the part about how we have created this social structure around race. I just finished reading Killers of the Flower Moon about the Osage murders because David Blakely suggested it. I feel like there's so much of this kind of history that that just tells heartbreaking stories and we need to be telling these stories.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Cuz you know I'm working on my memoir now.
1: I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that you have such a fascinating history
2: anyway. I know there's tons of stuff I don't know. So, I, you know, I have a poem that I wrote I a long time when I still thought I was Indian. <laughs> and the title is My Mother Has Told Me I'm Cherokee. And so, in the poem, it's me, you know, practicing to be Indian because the only Indians I've seen are on television. At least that's what I think when I'm a child. So I'm practicing what I see, you know, sitting, you know, cross legged, looking stoic, you know, all those things. <laughs> and so, I have a poem about that. And then to find out, and then, you know, I have so many poems about being Black and Indian and being involved in the Native American community because I felt like I was missing a part of myself. Then to find out that that I'm not, and I was stunned at first, and then I thought I would be embarrassed, you know, because Mm -hmm. I've publicly been portraying myself as Native. And my Native friends are totally
1: understanding (laughs) But you're not alone, you know, and there are so many stories of freedmen that are adopted into tribes. And and really, it does speak to this idea that we have this culture that's so wrapped up
2: in what race you are. And blood, you know, what's your, like for Native American, what's your blood quantum? I mean, that's a huge thing. It it was something. I'm I'm, I'm 81, 82 percent African and the rest is well, European.
1: All of the times that different tribes got moved around and things were lost and history was lost, it's very much like this Greenwood. I think about the loss of culture that we have experienced throughout this country and the assimilation of cultures. There's something there that we have got to start acknowledging.
2: There's so much that we have lost as far as economically and historically and socially and education-wise and politically because of what happened.
1: And a huge brain trust that's gone. And you've written about that to some extent. How do you approach a subject like that, the loss of parts of a culture? I don't even know how you would address it because you don't know for sure what's been
2: lost. Right. I know that they've been able to do a huge calculation of uh, businesses. They've got, you know, what businesses used to Exist in the Greenwood area and what the value of those businesses would be today. But we still don't know, um, as far as you know, personal homes, people who you know their homes, the value of their homes, if they weren't prominent, if they weren't prominent in the community, if they were just ordinary c- citizens like my grandparents, you know, we don't know what those losses entail. So it, it's really hard. And then of course we, you know, there are, there are some people that we we never will know that if the whole family was killed. There's no record of any of, you know, of those lives.
1: And of course, there's no one in the community of people who were responsible for that who are interested in digging it up either,
2: literally and figuratively. No, that's what my poem is about.
1: (laughs) When are you going to be performing this, and will it be recorded? Because I really hope it will be. The play is
2: just going to be heartbreaking because uh, Tara took information from uh, Mary E. Jones Parish collection of information that she took. Two weeks after mm. the uh, massacre mm. and uh, then uh, interviews you know the extra writing exercises and drama exercises that we did during the story circle last summer so everything in the play is real is from actual account it will be june 29th and 30th and july 1st the first two are going to be at the osu uh, auditorium And uh, the last one on that Sunday afternoon is going to be actually at the Greenwood Cultural Center. What Tara decided is the cast is all black. And you and I have talked about that before. Yeah. And so even the quotes from white people are going to be spoken by black people.
1: I have a theory about that because I think when you have a white audience member looking at an all black cast they're not going to be able to look for the person who looks like them. So they're going to have to find something
2: in their own humanity. Exactly. And she's going to use costume pieces. We'll all be in black, but the actors who are, once they portray a white character, they have a piece of white fabric or a costume on. Right at the time that they're portraying a white person. Oh,
1: that's smart.
2: I was just really grateful to be asked to be part of it because I'm not doing any of the acting. I'm just going to do my two poems. I love that. I'm not surprised. And
1: you shouldn't be either. You're such an advocate and a great spokesperson, and in addition to being a fantastic poet. I'm just enamored of your work and so excited to hear that this is out there. I can't wait until the day when you can get around the country and do this.
2: I hope that day is coming. I hope that will be. Maybe I'll, you know, you know, I keep saying when I retire, but I haven't retired yet.
1: Are you the first social worker that the library has had?
2: They had a pilot program initially where they had a case manager that was part-time. I'm the first full-time case manager. They decided to make it a full-time position and approached me about it. So I've been in the libraries for four years now. I'm at the Central Library four days a week and then one day a week I rotate around to the other branches. Happy. And I'm not really a social worker so that's one of the things that because I'm not a licensed social worker I'm a certified mental health case manager, behavioral mm-hmm. health case manager.
1: What a great program and I'm so happy to see that the library is doing these sorts of things. Are there ever days when you get to the end of the day and you think, I just need to be in a closet now for a little while and be quiet? <laughs>
2: I do that every day when I come home from work. <laughs> Take off I'll- the and shoes and <laughs> yes. camp out on the couch. <laughs> yes. I think that would be a necessity. I know it would be for me. But- I've been behavioral health case manager for almost seven years now. And so yeah. I, I I couldn't do it if I didn't take care of myself and
1: deal with my daughter, too. I'm so glad that you have
2: art as an outlet.
1: There's so many other things we could talk about. Your work with incarcerated people, your work with people with disabilities. There's so many things that you've done to better the community. I'm proud to know you. We are the lucky ones because you have art as an outlet. Deborah Hunter, thank you so much. Thank you.
2: Thank yeah. you, Sally. Good, good talking good to lovely. you.
0: It's time now for concise advice from the interview. I have five bits of advice from poet activist Deborah J. Hunter. Number five, to perform a poem in first person that is not your personal story, become a character telling that story. Number four, nobody's better than you are. And you are no better than anyone else. Number three, racism is about education. Number two, speak out against microaggressions. And the number one piece of advice from poet activist Deborah J. Hunter, tell the truth. (laughs) That's it for concise advice from the interview. Check out the blog, sallypal.com, for articles and podcast episodes. You, too, can be a Sally Pal. Sally Pal now has a YouTube channel. It's https colon backslash www.youtube.com slash channel slash channel. Capital U, capital C, lowercase f, capital L, 9, capital L, lowercase z, capital V, lowercase b, lowercase i, lowercase d, lowercase t, capital R, lowercase q, capital C, capital C, capital Z, lowercase s, capital O, lowercase k, hyphen, lowercase i, lowercase m, lowercase w, (sighs) that's it. When I get some subscribers... YouTube promised me I could have a more memorable link. In any case, you can just click on the link on the blog and show notes. So subscribe while I figure out how to be a YouTuber. Also, look for workshop videos, short bits of advice, past podcasts, and the edited version of the live feed. Right now, you can watch the recorded live feed uncut. But that won't last because my mom says the pants I'm wearing don't work for TV. Until I figure out how to look like Cindy Crawford on my channel, you can catch... Three unedited hours of great interviews at town stages. Thank you for following, sharing, subscribing, reviewing, joining, and thank you for listening. Now I have one bit of wisdom from my husband, George, the coolest guy on the planet. George, what's your wisdom for today? Like George Orwell said, in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Well said, George. Well said. Excellent advice indeed. If you're downloading and listening on your drive to work or commenting and reviewing like my sister does, let me know you're out there. Storytelling through performance is the most important thing we do as a culture. That's why I encourage you to share your stories because you're the only one with your particular point of view. And Sally Pal is here with resources, encouragement, and a growing community of storytellers. All the stories ever expressed once lived only in someone's imagination. Now, tell your truth. we'll find out how it works (laughs) with this laurel and hearty handshake a lasting impact on her that just sounds so smarmy no let's not get started god it's hot in here i know